book of the Bible they'd like to hear somebody preach on, often at the top of that list is Revelation because they think, well, I don't really understand it. But then on the other hand, if you were to survey pastors, what is the book you'd least want to preach on? Often the answer given is Revelation and often the answer is because, because I don't understand it. I'm now in my 10th year of pastoral ministry, my fourth year at this particular church. Never once have I preached through the book of Revelation, partly because of the the difficulty and the complexity, but also too because it is a book which over history sometimes has divided Christians in how we should deal with it, how we should understand it. Now I'm sure there's some already at this point in time who are just excited because they think, I have never been in a church where anyone's ever taught anything from this book. On the other hand, there may be others who are really keen and love this book and have studied it quite intently. Some of them who are on the edge of their seat thinking, I wonder where Steve's going to go with this because we might not agree. Or they might think, is there even a different approach to this book? I've only grown up in one particular church. This is all I've ever heard. I never knew there were other perspectives on the book of Revelation. We will in a moment talk about the different ways in which people interpret and approach the book. Because if you've ever read through the book, you'll notice it, it's very different than most of the stuff that we're used to reading. You've got images there of like a beast with seven heads and ten horns. Now, I don't know what sort of stuff you read on a regular basis, but that's not the sort of thing that comes up in the books that I read. But it's sad that because it is different and because it is difficult in times and because sometimes people disagree over how to approach and understand it, it's sad that some churches just think, well, we're not going to touch it at all. Because when we're told the Bible tells us that all of the scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. So it would be foolish to say, I'm not going to touch part of what God has given to us that we might be complete for every good work, that we might be trained in righteousness. I mean, the full title of the book is The Revelation. Notice it's singular. I will I'll be, we'll be pedantic when people call it Revelations. The book is Revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ. It's a book about Jesus. Why would churches avoid a book that is centrally about Jesus? And not only is it a book about Jesus, as far as I'm aware, it is the only book in the Bible that promises blessing to those who read it, those who hear it, and those who live by it. Why would you miss a book that's about Jesus and promises blessing? Right from the beginning of creation, God has been a God who wanted to plainly make himself known to people. Revelation isn't an exception to that. God hasn't put together some tricky little book so that only an elite few who are really intellectual can figure it out. Think about the original people who got this book delivered to them in their church. They didn't all have a copy of their Bible sitting on the bookshelf so where they could keep going back and just read over and over again the book of Revelation. 
Maybe pick up a commentary explaining them, help them, or the study Bible with notes down the bottom. They didn't have that. There was one scroll that got passed around seven churches that was read from start to finish when the church gathered together and they understood it. It was in a style of writing that they were familiar with, even though we're not so familiar with it. They could see how it applied to them in their circumstances, in their life situation. So in one sense, it's sort of an introduction. There are also some rich things in there. We're going to spend a fair bit of time looking at background information. Things about what is the book, who wrote it, who's it to, because you need to understand these sorts of things before you understand any written document. We look in the first three verses what the book says about itself. And then in verses four to eight, what it says about the author, the audience, and of God. So be encouraged. We're about to read through a book and cover a book over the next 13 weeks that's about Jesus, the one whom our hearts should be totally enamoured with. And it promises blessing. So let's come before God as we help us to receive understanding and the blessing and the faithfulness to obey. Heavenly Father, we thank you that everything you give for us is for our good. We thank you that even this book, which on the surface seems a little bit more difficult or unusual to what we're familiar with reading, Lord, I pray that you would help us to open our eyes to know that you're not a God who wants to be complicated or confusing. You're a God who wants to make yourself known. And Lord, we pray that we would see something more of Jesus as we look at the book of Revelation over 13 weeks that we would know something of the blessing of what it says to us in our situation, what it said to those original hearers and what it says for all time. So Lord, help us to know the blessing not only by hearing it, but Lord, by putting into practice the things that you labour for us. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. So in order to understand the book, there are questions you really need to ask. Questions about who is writing, who are they writing to, why are they writing, when did they write it, what sort of writing is it? Because you don't just pick up a bit of paper if you're walking down the street and whatever it says, just think, I'm going to do this. That's just not the way you approach it. You don't go down to Bunnings and you're going to buy some chemicals to do something and you see on the, on the bottle it says not to be taken, you think, whoops, sorry. Some of these questions are answered in the very first chapter. It speaks about the author. It speaks about who the book is written to. It says something about the type of writing that it is. The author is introduced first in verse 4 as John, the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John as well. First, second and third John. And beyond what he initially says as just being his name in verse 4, in verse 9 gives a further bit of information. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Like he says to his original first century audience, 
I am your partner with you in the tribulation. He's saying, I'm in the tribulation, you're in the tribulation. I'm in the kingdom, you're in the kingdom. But he speaks about himself being on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of the word of God. Now, history tells us that because of his stand for Jesus Christ, the Apostle John was placed in a vat of oil and boiled to try and kill him, but he somehow managed to survive it. But one of the implications was he went off into exile in the island of Patmos, not that far from Ephesus. This is important background information. This guy who writes this knows and has experienced what it means to suffer for Jesus. And he's writing to some recipients, seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who are already experiencing suffering, and it's expected to increase. These seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. That's the same order. There's a little small letter written to each of those in chapters um, two, sorry, yeah, 2 and 3, which Samuel will be doing in a couple of weeks. But it's also the order in which the letter would have been delivered as the person carrying the scroll would have gone from that church around in that particular order. Now, I know they didn't have TV, they didn't have Netflix, John didn't just write because he had nothing better to do. You write letters because you've got a reason. There's something prompting you to write it. And the purpose why John has written this book, he has written it to encourage suffering Christians to be fa- remain faithful to Jesus Christ. To remind Christians who are suffering who are very much under pressure to compromise their faith. And he does so by reminding them who their God is, to show them something in the grandness of who their God is, what blessings he has promised to those to remain faithful to him. And ultimately, even though it might sound a little simplistic, to remind them that in the end, God wins. That all of the things of this world that might set themselves up in opposition to God, no matter how successful they may appear on the surface, no matter how attractive they might appear on the surface, will be brought to nothing at the day of Jesus Christ. This is written to first century Christians, seven churches. We'll get to interpretation a little bit, but one thing you can save to say is, as Paul has written to seven churches, I mean, sorry, John has written to seven churches, he understands that the majority of them is going to be applicable to them. To say that the majority of this book speaks about things that still, even now in our day, haven't happened, doesn't make sense of the way in which the author introduces the book. These Christians were under pressure to compromise their faith from all sorts of different angles. They were suffering persecution for being a Christian. If you worked in a trade, if you did not bow down and worship the emperor, you weren't allowed in the trade guilds, which meant that your livelihood was at risk simply by nature, by being a faithful Christian. And then on top of that, there was the attractiveness of some of the other surrounding religions. The appeal of sin, there was a lot of sexual immorality involved in those religions. 
And to be honest, probably for most of their days, as far as the eye could see, it probably appeared better off not to be a Christian. As in, it appeared easier not to be a follower of Christ, seemed to have more benefits on their day-to-day than it was to be a follower of Christ. It reminds me of the psalmist in Psalm 73, when he's like, why is it? Why is it that the wicked just seem to prosper? Why is it that everything seems to be going so well for them? But what would the psalmist reflect upon? He's like, but I know God's good. Regardless of what I see day to day, I know my God is good. I know what I need to do is I need to cling on to him. I need to be faithful to him. And that's the same for the first century Christians who are receiving this letter. Because pretty much the entire book is encouraging them to remain faithful to Jesus and reminded that he wins. Now the first of the debated issues is when did John write this? And they usually put them into two different schools around particular emperors who were known to be great persecutors of Christians. The first case, some people will put them during the reign of Nero who reigned between 54 and 68 and usually you will say towards the, the end of the 60s. Nero was nasty. He was known to actually get Christians, oil them up or tar them up, set them on fire to provide lighting for his parties. This is one of the things that the historian Tacitus says. He also says that he would get them and he would put them in the carcasses of animals and feed them to wild beasts while they were alive. This is what Nero was like. He blamed the Christians for the fires that came through Rome to try and make them to be a hated people. Why would people choose that particular date range? Well, they can see and understand the persecution connection. Some look at Revelation chapter 11 and see a reference to a temple and think, well, maybe it was still standing. Or they look at this description of this beast in chapter 17 with its seven heads, understanding those to be seven kings. And they think, well, the first one, we've got Julius Caesar, and then you go your way through, number seven would be Nero. We'll get to the temple when we get to Revelation 11. But Caesar actually wasn't an emperor. The second, the more commonly held view, was was during the reign of Domitian, who was between 81 and 96. Irenaeus, who's one of the early Christian writers, he said that this book was written during the reign of Domitian. Now, that's not just a trivial bit of information. Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a direct student of the Apostle John who wrote the book. So we have from a pretty good source that it was during the time of Domitian, so towards the end of the first century. But Domitian, he was a pretty nasty guy too. And he was quite a narcissistic guy. He was the first emperor who, while he was still alive, insisted on being worshipped as God. Whenever he put out commandments to the people, he'd say, the Lord and God says. And they're the titles that he would expect other people to use of him. Remember when, when Thomas said that of Jesus, my Lord and my God? That's what Domitian asked of and expected of himself. He was quite a hated fellow. Eventually he was murdered by one of his former slaves. And even the people, all the things that had his inscriptions on them, 
he, they would be rubbed out because people just didn't like him. We're going to hear a lot more about him later on. But suffice to say, John likely wrote the end of the first century during his reign. But in terms of what type of writing it is, verse 3, John tells it is prophecy. Prophecy doesn't just mean predicting future events, although it does include that. Often it can just mean to, to foretell particular things. And we see a lot in, in common with what we see in a lot of the Old Testament prophets, where they were calling God's people to remain faithful, to remain faithful to their God to whom they belonged, reminding them of the promises, the blessings for obedience and faithfulness, but also warning them of the consequences for unfaithfulness and turning away from him. So it's not only a prophetic book, it's also an apocalyptic book. It's why it's a very strange and unusual book, because that's not a type of literature that we're normally used to reading. It speaks a lot in terms of signs and symbols. We see some examples in the Old Testament. There's elements of that there in the books of Ezekiel. There's elements of that in Daniel and other parts of the Old Testament. But when you hear the word apocalyptic, you could think, oh yeah, apocalypse. We use that word all the time and think, oh, that's what we use to talk about the final end of the world. But that's not what the word means. The word just simply means an, an unveiling or revealing of something that was formerly hidden. So it does use symbolic language and pictures to communicate a very real and true reality. To give a modern day comparison like your, your Narnia series, The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, is not just about a lion and a witch. It is by way of symbolising or portraying a greater truth. And even though all of these symbols and things seem really weird to us when we read it, those who originally heard it, it made sense. A, because it was a style of writing that was quite common at that time. Not only because it was experienced in the Old Testament, but in between the Old and New Testament, there was a lot of apocalyptic writings by Jewish authors. It was the type of way they were used to communicating things. They knew it. But not only did they, were they familiar with the style, there was a lot that they would have seen there and say, I understand what this is pointing to. I recognise how this is immediately applicable to us now. But because we're unfamiliar with the style, it's difficult. Some of the things it does speak about are still even future to us now. People have got a variety of different ways in which they look at it. So I'm just going to quickly talk about different ways people approach this book before we get into it. Some will look at it as seeing a book of purely of things gone past. There are some who look at the book of Revelation and say, everything written in it pretty much, that happened first century. The people who take that view obviously presume an earlier date. The people who hold that view presume that the destruction that is talked about in this book is speaking about the destruction of the temple. It's not a view that I hold and it's not a view that too many people hold at all. The second approach is a futurist approach, which kind of suggests that Everything written in there is well beyond, or the majority of what's written there is well beyond the lifetime of the original recipients. Now, depending on different 
backgrounds or different interpretations. Some will even say from chapter 6 onwards only describes the final seven years of a great tribulation that happens after a rapture. And they would approach this book as a way of saying that everything that happens, it's like a chronological order. This event follows, this event follows, this follows, this follows that. This used to be my view. But overall, it really doesn't make much sense that John would write a letter to people in the first century and address this is for you to make 80% of it something that was thousands of years later than their own lifetime. Now the third, which has got two different forms of, is what we call the idealist view, which kind of suggests that it doesn't just describe this correlates specifically with that Sometimes it will talk broadly about the entire church history between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Sometimes these things will point to specific things in the lifetime of the first century hearers, but also project beyond that to future events and series as well. And when you look through the book of Revelation, you'll see there's actually a repeat of cycles. Well before you get to the end of chapter 19, you, ta- you see complete judgment and complete destruction appear a number of times in the book of Revelation. And so what you see, you see a cycle talking about the lifetime of the age between Jesus' first coming and second coming. You see the battle against these evil forces of Satan against God's people from various different perspectives. Now, I'm happy with the idea to say that it is a book about the last days, as long as you understand that term the way the Bible uses the term last days. The Bible never uses the term last days to talk about the final end of human history. It uses it as a term between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Remember when, at Pentecost, when the Spirit came and people were thinking, these disciples, they're all drunk other than Peter's little sly gag and say, no, we're not drunk, it's a bit early for that. He then goes on to say, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and all sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. He says, what Joel spoke about this time, what you were seeing here outpoured at Pentecost that Joel said belongs as part of the last days, he says, this is it. Think of the way in which the author of Hebrews uses the expression, long time ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. Or in chapter 9, but as it is, He, that's Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Apostle John narrows it down that a little bit further in one of his letters. He says, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour, presently, when John was writing. That's how the Bible understands last days. Everything between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The apostles lived in the last days. The recipients of the book of Revelation were in the last days. 
You and I are in the last days. Now that being said, if you, someone's thinking here, at some point Steve's going to give us some sort of a time frame as when Jesus is going to return or at least a range of dates, you're going to be incredibly disappointed because the Bible tells us that we're not to do that and we can't do that. Nobody knows. But in our background, we see that John has written to encourage Christians who are suffering, who are under enormous pressure to compromise their faith, to turn because it looked like they were far better off without Jesus on the surface. Calling to remind them who their God is, that he is worthy of their lives, he's worthy of their worship. That there are eternal blessings for obedience and the one to whom they belong is the one who is victor over all. The overwhelming majority of it describes situations that they would be very familiar with. And because these things characterise the last days of which we're also part of, it's just as relevant for us. So we finally actually get into some of the content. What does the book say of itself? Well, in verse 1, it's the revelation, which is pretty much a translation of the word apocalypse, singular, of Jesus Christ. That could mean it's either about Jesus Christ or it's from Jesus Christ and probably... It's fair to say that both of those two things are true. Which God, Revelation of Jesus Christ was God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. The purpose that's, that the author says, he's been given this revelation so that those who are the recipients of it might know the things which are soon to take place things that are at hand in their lifetime, things that they will see in their lifetime. At no stage did John think that he was writing predominantly about things that were centuries away from the time in which he wrote them. Rather, things that are at hand now, things that were coming soon to the original recipients and things that would continue to characterise this age in which we live. The message comes from God, to Jesus, who sends an angel to John, and John communicates it to his servants. That God has made it known by sending his angel. That wording there where it says, to made it known, comes from the same word, to sign, to signify. So the author is very explicit. God has chosen to use signs and symbols to communicate this revelation. So the first verse tells us it's an unveiling of hidden things using symbols. Pointing to genuine, true realities using symbols to to portray them. So to look at the book and say, okay, we must do exact correlate, literally this equals this exactly, exactly the way it says, actually is to approach the book differently than the way the author calls us to approach it. Even the term literal means according to literature. You approach something according to the type of literature it is. You approach poetry in a particular way, you take apple apocalyptic prophecy a different way 
I remember someone drawing a picture of the, the woman in the Song of Solomon, the way that they were described. We know with a neck with like the Tower of Babel and all those things, and they took those literally. It was a great little picture. We see what John does is he bears witness to everything that he sees. The book is predominantly a series of him describing the visions that he sees. Sometimes he provides a little bit of, of commentary of what they mean. For example, in the opening chapter, he talks about seven lampstands, then get to verse 20, it says, and these seven lampstands represent the seven churches. Now, Laura is pretty excited this morning. She got to read to say, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And he's like, yeah, amen for that. Because <laughs> you've got to remember, in the first century, they didn't have their own Bibles. There was this one scroll that would have passed from church to church and as they were gathered together corporately, one person would have had the, the privilege and the blessing of reading that and declaring it to all the people who were gathered there. But it says there's blessing not only for those who read it out loud, but those who hear it. Because the things which they heard had immediate application, immediate blessing and encouragement to the situation that they found themselves within. So there's blessing for reading, hearing and doing now if the book of revelation was to describe things that would like still yet to happen in the majority of it it would be very hard for the original recipients to put those things into practice the author intends that what he has communicated to them is going to be very useful and very practical so if you thought that the book of revelation is one you avoid because there's nothing practical in it i would suggest to you god says otherwise it's to be observed and kept, and there is bl- promised blessing in doing so. Now, we've got, a, we've got a pretty exciting road ahead over the next 12 weeks. As John greets the seven churches with a familiar greeting, much like that of Paul, of grace and peace, it comes from the whole Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father being presented as the one who is and was and who is to come, When you see reference to the seven spirits, we're not to presume that there are seven different Holy Spirits. We'll see this exact phrase come up a number of times in the book of Revelation. And we'll see the number of seven come up many times too, where it is a depiction of a fullness and a completion. So the fullness of the Spirit and of Jesus the Son, who is described as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings. These aren't just minor little details to pass over, particularly those descriptions written of Jesus. The firstborn of the dead. He is the firstborn of the new creation. The new creation which has been promised has begun with the resurrection of Christ. It's exciting for his hearers to hear and know that. But it's not only the beginning of the new creation, the kingdom has begun also. Jesus, who ascended to the right hand, is now described as the ruler of all kings. Remember how the Old Testament prophesied that one would come from David who would have an everlasting kingdom? When Acts 2, Peter spoke about this regarding David. Speaking of David, he says, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. 
That's how Peter explains that. As Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.25. He must reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. But recall the setting. These hearers are under the reign of the emperors, under great persecution. And they are reminded here, Jesus, the one to whom you belong, is the ruler over all kings. No matter how nasty Domitian, no matter how nasty Nero was, every single one of them are underneath and are subject to the ruler over all kings. These people who are oppressing you, they are not the final authority. They are not the ultimate power, no matter how much it might look like it. And no matter how bad it gets, it's never outside of Jesus' control. That doesn't mean there's a simple, easy answer to why God's allowing this or why, why this is happening. But there is a trusting that he is doing and carrying out his good purposes. But how often when we read through the Bible do we read about how Jesus loved us, past tense? How Jesus loved us, past tense, as he died on the cross in our place? But here in verse 5, we see which something doesn't happen too frequently in the Bible, but it's true. He loves presently. He loves us. The one who had passed, freed us from our sins, loves us now. If you are a child of God, in relationship with Jesus, by faith in him, of his death being your death on your behalf, you receiving his righteousness, being his child, he loves you presently, continually. Maybe you could even say, he is loving you. These first century hearers who are seeing nothing much in the way of God's blessing towards them, they're just seeing persecution, hardship, they're seeing it as being harder to be a Christian than not to be a Christian. Reminder, the one who is rule of kings loves them. Just pause there for a moment. Because I know without doubt there are people in this room who need to know that God presently loves them. If you're a child of God by faith in Christ, Jesus has loved you in saving you from your sin and is loving you today. And guess what? Whatever thing you've done in the past, he knows about that and he loves you today. Whatever sin you did this week just been, he knows and he loves you today. Whatever sin you've done this morning, he knows and he loves you today. Jesus freed us from our sin, past, and made us past a kingdom and priests. The language used of Old Testament Israel who failed to carry out that task, he now applies broadly to those who are children of God. Then by taking ideas both from Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12, applying them to Christ, speaking of one who came with the clouds, in Daniel 7 the original prophecy was, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And he came to him and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So we've still got the same depiction of one with the clouds but in Daniel is it one who's coming from God to receive a kingdom or is it one who's going to God who receives a kingdom? It says he came to the Ancient of Days and was given a dominion and glory all peoples and nations should serve him. He sent it to the right hand and he is reigning. But as John speaks about the one coming with the clouds, that same one who is reigning, the one who is ruler over all kings, is returning. Who every eye will see and will wail. Quoting and coming from Zechariah 12.10 where initially the original quote was of God himself and with relation to the nation of Israel. Now it's saying all people, all nations will see him and they will wail because to the one who is the creator and ruler of all will bring the blessings as he has promised to those who are faithful to him and will punish all those who are opposed to him. Even such warnings like this show his desire. He wants people to turn and be freed from their sin. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, it says. Then in the final verse for this morning, he ends with a final reminder of the grandeur of God. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. Remember, I'm the one who has no beginning, no end. There was no one before me. There's no one after. I'm the one who was, who is, who is to come. I am the Almighty. There is no one with greater authority or power. This is the God to whom you belong if you are his child. So what? Well, in one sense, you could say, well, this morning was pretty much an introduction to the book. But there was some pretty rich stuff in there, wasn't there? Deep encouragements. That if you were a child of God by faith, you have been freed from your sin by the blood of Christ and he loves you presently today. That this book that we're about to venture out onto the next 12 weeks is a book which there is great blessing through reading, hearing and putting into practice. Now, our circumstances aren't exactly the same as the original recipients. But we've got our fair share of things which we're pressured to compromise. Where sometimes on a day-to-day basis, it might look like the people around us, their life looks more enjoyable, more satisfying than us as Christians. But what is repeated through the book of Revelation, stay faithful. He is worth it. He is the Almighty. He is the one who will return and who will give abundant blessing to the one who conquers and endures to the end. Life as a Christian won't always be easy. Jesus never said that it would. As a matter of fact, he promised that it won't be. But do you remember, you belong to the Almighty, the ruler of all kings, who freed you from your sin, who is loving you presently, even in the worst day, the most sinful day you have ever had. The one who is worth following 
the one who's calling you to faithful obedience and written by someone who knows and has experienced that firsthand and says he is worth it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who can be trusted. We thank you that your greatness and your majesty is not changed in any way by the hardships or difficulties that we might experience in this life. Lord, we thank you that you are the one to whom we can cling to, that you are our hope in the middle of darkness. We thank you for the reminder that you love us because at times our circumstances may look like you don't. But you do and you are working in us that which is good and pleasing in your sight to make us more like your son. And so Lord, we pray that we might come to know the, the blessing of looking at this book and seeing the way in which you minister to us and encourage us. But Lord, may we know the blessing of obedience and obedience and faithfulness even in the middle of it, our faith being tested to, the, to a great degree. We thank you for what it tells us about our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now that you've got a background, I would strongly suggest 